Jesus, we pray that your resurrection power, which brought back Lazarus from the dead, and which promises to bring us all into the resurrection of life eternal, would, would be here now, that we would experience it not only this morning, but for the rest of our life. I pray that you would help us own our union with you as a secure and strong identity. Lord, I pray that wherever we're at with you, um, that you would secure us in your strength. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And uh, I invite you to follow along with me. We'll be in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. You can turn there in your bulletins or Bibles. So this is the final sermon in the series we've been in for the last few months called Who Are You? Who are you? And no matter where you're coming from this morning, uh, no matter where you're at in terms of God or religion or Jesus, um, you probably have some kind of answer to that question. Who are you? Well, I'm a skeptic, or I'm questioning, or I'm a mother, or I'm a father, or I'm an urbanite, or I'm an Anglican, or I'm a future doctor, or I'm a present nurse, or whatever it might be. I'm a healthy person. I'm vegan. However you answer that question, how sure can you be? Has that answer ever been tested by real life? Have you ever been tested? Has your identity ever been put under pressure, put under the fires? How secure is your identity actually? That answer that you give to the question, who are you? Are you sure that you can say that at the end of your life? Are you sure that you could say that in a year if all hell broke loose in your life? How secure are you in your identity? I have a friend, uh, we'll call him Blake. Blake was in the prime of his career. Married, five kids, no microphone problems. Blake was in a serious injury, and it took away massive capabilities from his life, especially physically and verbally. Uh, before the accident, he was in awesome shape. He was like always pacing and walking around. After the accident, wheelchair bound. I, my heart breaks to say that his wife left him, that he moved in with his parents where he could receive care from which he was separated from his kids several hour drive, a several hour drive. Now let me ask you this. Does Blake still have a self? Does he still have an identity that's, that's worth anything? Does he have an identity that would be good enough for you? How do you know that you're not going to fail your way out of your identity? How do you know that it's not going to be taken from you? Freddie Rumson is a fictional character who starts out as a, a high-powered writer at a, at a New York City ad agency. And his alcoholism interferes with his work. 
and his employer puts him on a six-month sabbatical, and he knows exactly what that means. And before he gets into the cab to drive, to drive away, forever not to be seen again, the last question he asks his friend who just fired him is, if I don't go into that office every day, who am I? How might we rephrase Freddie? Who am I if I had to move to the suburbs? Who am I if I was unable to be healthy, if I was unable to exercise? Who am I if my friends disown me, if my family disown me? Who am I if I lost my job, if I lost my calling, if I, if I got kicked out of the guild? Who am I if I didn't have a woman to love? Who am I if I didn't have a man to love? Who am I? Would you still have a self if your identity was tested? This series has been about rediscovering our true identity and our true purpose in our union with Christ. And when we're united with Christ, one of the things that we've seen is that you can lose everything on the outside and still have absolute security on the inside. It doesn't mean you're not gonna experience trauma or emotions. It doesn't mean that it's not going to shake you to the core. But when you are shaken to the core, you still have a self if you are united with Christ. Not only now, but on the other side of death. You can fail spectacularly and still triumph in Christ. You can experience painful rejection from the people you love and admire and not be destroyed from that rejection. You can still be treasured. You can get physically broken, yet carry in you a strength that is otherworldly. You can be celibate, yet still know a deep and abiding intimacy. You can endure great hostility and great evil and in response demonstrate resilience and forgiveness through your union with Christ. Paul's final words uh, to us begin in verse 10 when he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Finally, at the end of the day, at the end of this series, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He is not saying be strong for the Lord. Prove yourself to the Lord. That's not what he's saying. He's saying be strong in, comprehensively, your Savior, your union with Christ. You're not mustering up spirituality to appear good enough for Jesus. He's the source of your strength. He's the source of your spirituality. And you can draw upon it whatever circumstance you're in. You can run to him. He's a refuge for you when you're under attack. If you're abandoned by someone you love, he's your family. If you're facing down evil and you feel afraid, he's your courage. If you're despairing for the future, he's your hope. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the strength of his might. This is the durable identity that can withstand hell, that can withstand any change of life any rejection, any failure, 
earlier in the letter, Paul references, he calls it the immeasurable greatness of his power, Jesus' power, towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, the power of the Father raising Jesus Christ from the dead is our power, meaning we can be as good as dead. And our union with Christ is still ticking. It's still an operation. It's still the foundation of, upon which we live. It's still, we still have the source of life. We still have the source of strength. You can lose all the external trappings of life as you know it, and you can still have a self. So how are we to draw upon this strength? This is what we're talking about today. Um, we're going to talk about three ways that we can, we can operate in the strength that is ours when, you, when we're united with Christ. How do we operate in this unshakable identity that we have? We'll look at three ways. If you're ex- uh, listening to this sermon as a skeptic or someone who's exploring the claims of Christianity, I want to say up front that that these actions are only possible through Christ. So if you find yourself longing to participate as you're listening, if you find yourself longing for this kind of strength, call out to Jesus Christ and ask him to help you. He'll help you. He'll, He'll walk with you. He's ready. He's waiting. He's been pursuing you. Now, if you're listening to the sermon as a Christian who feels, maybe you feel disconnected from the strength of Jesus Christ. Consider asking him to highlight one of these actions for you. There's a step that you can take today to begin to operate in Jesus' strength at a level that's new for you. So let's look at three ways to live in the enduring, fortifying identity we have in Christ. Number one, we resist the unseen enemy. Okay, which requires that, number two, we receive the unseen armor. Okay, but in order to do that, it requires that we return to the unseen source. All right, so we're resisting the unseen enemy. We're receiving the unseen armor. And finally, we're returning to the unseen source. Turn with me to, uh, if, if you haven't already, Ephesians 6. And then let's look at verse 11, 11 through 13. Resisting the unseen enemy. What does that mean? Reading from verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Now, you heard those verses and maybe you're thinking, ah, do we really have an unseen enemy? Isn't this kind of like ancient mythic language for ancient people who didn't have science and didn't have an understanding of how cause and effect work and don't have the kind of resources we have to explain reality? Is there really a a person called Satan? Is there really a person called the devil? (coughs) Um, It's become fashionable to ask those questions in America. Fashionable to 
to deny that Satan exists, to think of him as kind of a cartoon character, maybe a plot device that's kind of interesting but uh, untenable to believe in. Now, if you're a skeptic that the devil exists, you're welcome here, and I want to invite you to explore uh, three pieces of evidence. And these are not original with me. This is, I, I, these are inspired from a pastor from New York called Tim Keller and his teaching on spiritual warfare, um, but adapted for us. So consider three, three uh, points of evidence. Number one, consider the scope of racism in Chicago. Consider the scope of racism in Chicago. Do you think, do you really think that the alienation between the races and between the cultures in our city can only be explained from sociology and psychology? And think about the history of our city and the cruelty that has been laid upon uh, people of African-American descent. Think about redlining. Think about how deeply divided we are. And then the creation of the Eisenhower Expressway 290 only made it worse. Think about how deep. We've been able to do so much in our city. From the beginning of, of the, the history of our city, we've been able to use science and engineering and problem solving to, to, to do so many things. I mean, think about the Chicago River. We were able to reverse the flow of the Chicago River but we have not been able to reverse the flow of the Chicago racism. And we have all the tools at our disposal. There's so many open-minded people here. There's there's so many people here who love mixing cultures, but yet we have not been able to root out racism in Chicago. And do you really think that that's just because we haven't been able to figure it out yet? It is no accident that some of our biggest problems, like racism, come against people. Come against people and lead to their deaths. And their lack of flourishing is not an accident. Andrew Del Banco uh, is a Columbia University literary scholar, and he wrote a book called The Death of Satan. And he comes out and he says, hey, look, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I'm secular, and, but he's just making some observations. And the first line of his book, he says, a gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources to cope with it. As the 20th century has gone on, he says later in his book, as the 20th century has gone on, okay, bigger than just Chicago, it's become harder and harder to say that holocausts and ethnic cleansing and serial killing is just bad sociology or psychological formation. So what are you going to do with the evidence of the 20th century, not only in Chicago, but around the world? The more tools we have to solve problems, the more people die. That is no accident. And I want you to consider it as one of the possible evidences that there is a personal spiritual force that's bad, that comes against humanity. Okay, second piece of evidence is the witness and insights of other cultures Okay, in the words of one pastor, if you struggle with believing in a personal devil, consider that you might be culturally narrow. White Western people have a hard time believing in Satan, but this is not true of people outside of the U.S., especially in Africa and Asia and the global south. 
Are you really going to look down on all that wisdom? And are you? Could it, be, could it possibly be that you, in denying the existence of Satan, denying the existence of a personal evil, that you could be culturally narrow? Third bit of evidence to consider, and this is only if you, if you believe that this is evidence. Maybe you don't. But number three, it's the existence of God. So if you, believe, if you could believe in a, a personal spiritual being that's good, why then could there not be the existence of a personal spiritual being that's evil and bent? Couldn't both exist? So think about it, because the stakes are high. We need to be aware of if there is an unseen spiritual evil that's personal and directed against humanity, wouldn't you want to know? Wouldn't you know how, want to know how it operates? Wouldn't you want to know how it works? Wouldn't you want to know how to stand against it? Let's not be naive. We need to be aware of the way Satan works. He stands against us, and we need to learn how to rebel against him and say, hell no. I will not give in to your schemes. I'm not going to be unaware. I'm not going to be naive. Hell no. So what do these verses say about Satan? Okay, verse 11 says that he schemes so that we'll fall. He's plotting to take us down. Verse 12 says that we wrestle against an entire interconnected network that answers to him. Okay, and it's wrestling. It's hand-to-hand combat. It's close. It's closer than you think. And verse 13 says that when we're united with Christ, we can resist him. We can rebel against him. Why does he scheme against us? You know, we're not fighters. We didn't ask to be in a battle. We're nice people, reconcilers, right? Satan hates everything that God has made. And he's built his identity on bending and destroying and perverting the good things that God has made. So you and I bear his image in a special way. And that's why he has unique malice towards people, towards towards humanity. That's why some of the hardest problems that we have have to do with people. There is, there's a spiritual component that's interconnected with the interpersonal component, the seen component. We bear God's image. We're destined for glory if we're united with Christ, and that threatens his glory. We have access. All of us have, been, all of us have fallen. All of us have committed some moral failures But Jesus Christ offers an exchange where he redeems us. He came to redeem us. He came to live our life and die our death so that he could redeem us. Satan hates that. He hates redemption. Okay, the very fact that Jesus has offered to unite himself to us puts a target on our back. Whether we like it or not, Satan doesn't want us to have a secure identity. He wants us to always be obsessing over our identity but never finding clarity about who we actually are. He wants us to be looking horizontally at other people to tell us who we are instead of looking to the source, our, uh, looking vertically to the living God to tell us who we are. Satan plays nasty. He does not play fair and he does not keep his bets. Here's one example of this. Um, Paul says in um, verse 16, um, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. 
These are, metaphorically speaking, they're not just arrows, but they're arrows dipped in pitch, set of, uh, on fire, and, and like aimed at us. And, and Paul says, take up the shield of faith in ancient warfare. What you do is you had a shield that was like as big as a door, like almost as big as this table here. And you carry, it was iron, okay, with some leather around it. And you actually had to dip it in water because flaming darts would come your way. You know what happens when a flaming dart makes its way into a shield? Is it burrows itself inside the shield, sets it on fire, and it, it's iron, so you drop it. It burns your hand. This is a, a way of picturing the schemes of the devil. He's a nasty, scheming person who's set against you, looking for your weaknesses, looking for the lies you already believe about yourself, looking for the tendencies you already have, like someone, like someone wading in the water, watching the boat rock back and forth, and when the boat rocks just enough, jumping out of the water and then pushing you overboard. He waits and he schemes. And if you stand against him, if you march into his territory to bear God's image in the world, if you want to love people in this city, you want to go where there is no light, if you want to go where people need love, you, you better believe he will stand against you. Don't be naive. Don't be proud. Don't think that you're above this nastiness. You're not. There will be an evil day in your life. I say this simply to just tell you in advance. Ask anyone who has spent time seriously following Christ to actually love their neighbor, and they will tell you an evil day is coming, but you can withstand it. An evil day is when the attack seems to intensify, where it's not quiet anymore. There's, the waters are a little bit more choppy, and, you're, and, and things in your life are, are getting rocked. Your marriage is getting rocked. Something's happening with your kids. Something's happening in your life, in your vocation. You're being rocked psychologically, spiritually. An evil day is coming. An evil day is coming perhaps when you'll be injured. Perhaps when someone will slander you. An evil day is coming. And let me tell you, friends, in advance to take heart because Jesus Christ has overcome the evil one and he has withstood on the evil day. And you have his resurrection power to stand on that evil day. Jesus uh, says to Peter, he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded you, demanded to have you, rather, that he may sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, meaning when you've repented of what's going to happen, strengthen your brothers. Now, isn't that interesting? Jesus says, Satan has demanded to have you. He wants to sift you like wheat. There's an evil day coming, Peter, and he's gonna sift you, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned, strengthen the brothers. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying to Peter and us, hey, look, Satan wants to sift you. I want to strengthen you. Both are gonna use the same trials. Now, isn't that interesting that there's a strength that we will not have unless we go through the evil day? Again, ask anyone who's been following Jesus for a long time and they'll tell you, I wouldn't have asked for my trial, but I could not imagine how strong that trial would have made me. 
evil days help us get more secure in our identity in Christ. Satan wants to sift us. Jesus wants to strengthen us, and both will use the same trial. So stand in the evil day. Resist and rebel against the evil one. His days are numbered. Ours are not. And this is going to require that we receive the unseen armor. Verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. I remember when I was old enough to start trying on my dad's suit jackets. I'd put them on sometimes just to wear around the house, not like all the time. (laughs) Other times, I would have a speech to give, right? Or an interview or something. I'd wear it outside the house. And when I put on my dad's jacket, it reminded me of all the things he had put inside me, his strength, his wisdom. Jacket smelled like him, smelled like 80s cologne. (laughs) It was my dad's jacket. He wore it. And when I put it on, it gave me strength. Now the armor of God, these are the clothes of Messiah. These are the clothes of Jesus Christ. When we put on this armor, we put on Jesus. Isaiah talks about this armor. We, we heard about it in our Old Testament reading. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, Isaiah says, and, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And that's in Isaiah 11. And then in our reading, it says, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Okay, now the Messiah's armor, Jesus' armor that Isaiah foretold, it was a protection for him, but it was also a symbol of his coming reign to everyone that he came to rescue, wasn't it? And by wearing it, we bear witness to Jesus' coming reign. It's not only a protection for us, it's a symbol of the righteous kingdom that he comes to bring. It's a symbol of the salvation that he wants to bring, not just for us, but for our neighbors, for our families, for our friends, for the world. Verse 14 refers to the belt of truth. The belt of truth, this is the gospel, and it's the foundational garment. Where would we be without truth? It undergirds everything. The breastplate of righteousness is situated within the belt of truth. This is how armor works. The sword of the spirit, the word of God, attaches to the belt of truth. This is a foundational, almost like undergarments, except it's the, it's the first layer of the armor. And we take on the belt of truth when we receive the truth of the gospel, when we begin to own the truth of the gospel, and we become people of truth who listen to truth, who tell the truth. Satan's primary way of taking us down is through lies, It's through lies, and we must take on the belt of truth because this is our first and foundational protection. The breastplate of righteousness is a beautiful symbol of God's character. The breastplate 
of righteousness. And righteousness in the scriptures refers both to personal holiness as well as public justice. It's both and. Some of us err on the side of, more, well, more public justice. Personal holiness is, is for the cheesy Christians. Maybe some of us are more, we, we are more attuned to thinking about personal righteousness, personal holiness in our life, and A, maybe public justice is for, 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 um, for, for other people, but it's both. Righteousness is both. The righteousness of God is a shield that protects human flesh from the evil that would destroy it. Righteousness protects human flesh. Not only ours, but the people that we are, uh, the people with whom we share our city, people that we are taking Jesus' reign to. Jesus wore this breastplate of righteousness, and he wore it not just for himself, but on behalf of the vulnerable to symbolize the coming reign for the poor and the persecuted. And now we wear it. We wear it, not only through our righteous obedience to Jesus Christ, but we wear it on behalf of those who don't know him yet or for those who are vulnerable. If we wanna be people of hospitality, if we wanna be, be people who protect human beings rather than use them, we are being called to a righteous life. This is a breastplate not only for us, but for everyone we come into contact with. All right, the shield of faith. The shield of faith, I believe, is our protection against discouragement. Fiery darts are meant for your heart. Fiery darts are meant to kill. And they go right to the place where we are most vulnerable. And so we must dip our uh, shields of faith in our baptismal identity that we are God's son, that we are God's daughter, that he is well pleased with us. That is our shield of faith against discouraging lies. I had a friend tell me this week, he said one time in a you know, a season of vulnerability, I woke up and I heard with an audible voice, you're a worthless piece of crap, except it was more vulgar than that. No one in the room except for him. And he said, what was revealed to me was that what I had been hearing silently, the Lord allowed me to hear aloud. Do you have things like that looping through you, through your, through, through your consciousness? You're a worthless piece of crap. Why'd you fail again? No one's gonna love you. You're two X and not enough Y. Those are lies. Those are meant to destroy you. So take up the shield of faith Dip it in your baptismal identity, those waters, and stand against them. Stand against them. Speak the truth of the gospel to yourself and tell Satan to go to hell. Verse 15, the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Shoes, footwear, so important. When it's raining outside, like it was this week, and it's like the puddle, Chicago puddles are just... You know, they're epic. They're so amazing, okay? Or when it's snowing and it's just like, you know, it's slushy or whatever. So I had these boots from, from, uh, from a company. I won't say the company. It's just no endorsements here. But, um, but I don't fear the rain anymore like I used to. I, I go anywhere I need to go. I have even picked up my children and carried them through. I feel very heroic doing that. 
listen, unless you have the right footwear, you're not going to go where you need to go. Have you put on the shoes of the gospel? Do you, do you have, the, do you have the, the, the footwear, as it were, spiritually speaking, to, to speak the words of the gospel to the people who need to hear it the most? Or are you limited in some way? Some of us have not been prepared. We have not prepared ourselves to speak the word of the gospel because there's a part of it that doesn't believe it. You need to be prepared. There was another time uh, I, was, I was working, not at the current job I have, but uh, another job I had in another city. And someone, I was working late. Someone came to me and they shared with me, you know what, I just, would you just, I know that you, you know, you're a religious person, would you pray for me? I've been having these night terrors. I've been, I've been being terrorized, but what I feel like is an, like a strong, oppressive, evil force. Could barely put words to it. And, and, and all of a sudden, I had to be ready to talk with him about that. And I did pray with him, and he did experience, and we had conversations about what the gospel means after that. It's just, you don't know when people are going to need you to be ready. Are you ready with the shoes of the gospel of peace? This is the way we, the way we operate and the strength we already have in Christ. So, we res- resist the unseen enemy, which requires that we receive Messiah's unseen armor, and that requires that we return to the unseen source, to return to the unseen source. When we're in battle, when we're enduring the evil day, and all the stress that brings, all the trial that brings, we have to go back to the source of our identity and strength, not only for our own behalf, but on behalf of everyone else who is in Christ. So what does that look like? Uh, Look with me in verse 18. Praying at all times, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now, let's just pause for a minute and just consider how, what an honor this is. You know, this whole book, Paul has been teaching the Ephesian church who they are in Christ. And, and like, there was something they really needed to learn uh, about that. But here he is at the very end of his letter, and he's saying, I, I need you. That, that your union with Christ is not just about you. It's about me. It's about your, 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 the church planter. But, but it's also about all the people that I'm interacting with. He's depending on them. He's saying, look, the way that you pray has a direct impact on reality. What, do you know what an honor that is? I just want to stop and say that the way that we pray or not has a huge impact on reality. Not, it's not just for us. It's not just so that we can endure on the evil day. Do you know how many other people need you to pray? You can't even begin to imagine the people that you're going to impact through your prayers. When you go back to the unseen source, again, ask someone who's followed Christ for a long time, and they haven't even died yet and figured out the complete impact. 
but they've seen something of the way their prayers change reality because, friends, we live in a world that is suffused with heaven and earth. And to paraphrase Shakespeare, there's more to heaven and earth than is dreamt of in your psychologies and sociologies. There's so much going on that we cannot see. Your prayers have a direct impact on me and everyone I impact, a direct impact on everyone that you know, and more. Let me tell you as your pastor, I need you to operate in your union with Christ in prayer because it's not just about you. There's so much at stake. Racism in Chicago is at stake. Violence in Chicago is at stake. People's lives, their, their well-being now and before God is at stake because of the way you pray. Now, listen, everything is sourced from Christ, so it's not, the pressure's not on, but the stakes are high. So let us pray together. Let us keep awake, as Paul says. Let us be sober. Let us be sober, and let us pray with joy. If you, some of us pray, you know how some of us pray? We pray like we're leaving our uncle a voicemail on his birthday, because we have to. <laughs> have you ever done that? You know, say the right things. You know, kind of muster up. The way that Paul's describing prayer here is like, I mean, we're like in the trenches. We're like, in battle, you know, and I know that many of us have not been in battle, so maybe that's cheesy for you. Battles are real, and they're happening all over the world right now, and it's life and death. Maybe, oh, we're too cool for that. We are not too cool for that. We're in the foxhole with Jesus and with the people that he's united himself to, and prayers like communication with each other and him about what's happening, about what we need, about the wounds we're taking on the evil day. Prayer is a high-stakes enterprise. And whether you like it or not, you are impacted by the battle and you are called to it as well. You're not too cool for the battle. No matter how educated you are or nuanced you are or fill in the blank, you are a spiritual being and everything you do has an impact on reality, seen and unseen. So we come together. We pray together. Do you know that your, your primary problem in life, the problems in your life, are not primarily about getting other people to do what you need them to do? Did you know that? That your, the primary battle is what is animating human reality that you can't see? Wrestling with, with the principalities and powers? We don't need to worry about the hierarchy or anything. You just need to know that there's a great unseen battle being waged right now. And it's waged on behalf of people or against them. Not just us, but others as well. And so do you have a disagreement with someone here? Your battle is not against them. Your battle is against Satan. Your battle is against everything that would come against human flesh. So let us agree in prayer. Let us agree, perhaps we don't agree on matters of theology, but perhaps we can come together and pray and intercede on behalf of our city. That's what we're called to do. Identity is not about being good enough. It's not about not failing. It's not about impressiveness. It's not about how much we're 
connected or disconnected. It's not about being affirmed. Identity in Christ is playing the role we're meant to play with the power we're meant to operate in. We are Christ's unshakable ones. We are Christ's unshakable ones. And we have a commission to follow Jesus where he leads us out of love for him and neighbor. So let us be strong in the Lord. Let us be strong in the Lord and who we are. End with a prayer written by an old saint, St. Patrick. I invite you to receive this prayer for yourself. I bind unto myself today the power of God to hold and lead, his eye to watch, his might to stay, his ear to hearken to my need, the wisdom of my God to teach, his hand to guide, his shield to ward, the word of God to give me speech, his heavenly host to be my guard. Against the demon snares of sin, the vice that gives temptation force, the natural lusts that war within, the hostile men that may mar my course, or few or many or far or nigh, in every place and in all hours, against their fierce hostility, I bind to me these holy powers. I invite you to stand for this last part. Christ be with me. Christ within me, Christ beside me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in hearts of all that love me, Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. I bind unto myself the name, the strong name of the Trinity, by invocation of the same, the three in one, and one in three, by whom all nature hath creation, eternal Father, Spirit, Word, praise to the Lord of my salvation. Salvation is of Christ the Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.